morning, everyone. So good to see you all here this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible here, maybe you've got it on your app, or you can grab a pew Bible in front of you, and hopefully you can find Matthew chapter 7. Today we are going to revisit the family commitment that was introduced back, I believe, on January 8th. And if you weren't here on January 8th, you can go back and find that message uh, either on YouTube or on the church webpage and refresh yourself on what the WBC family commitment is all about. You can see on the bottom of the screen there our new vision statement that we introduced last fall, All for Christ. We want to be a church that is all for Christ. And we taught through uh, this theme last fall and used the shape of the cross to emphasize four different angles of this phrase, all for Christ, that we want to be true of us as individuals and as a church. We want to be those who have surrendered all for Christ. We want to be a church that is altogether for Christ, that recognizes that the Christian faith is a community of faith in which we live together as brothers and sisters serving God and living in this world as his people. We want to reach all for Christ. That is our mission we're continuing the mission that Jesus began in his earthly ministry, and we want to continue that by reaching people in our community and globally, and we want to do all of this all for the glory of Christ. This is what it means to be all for Christ. We introduced this last fall, and then in January, we introduced the family commitment. What is the family commitment? Most churches today, most evangelical churches have some kind of church membership, some, something in place so that there's uh, a clarity around who's in and who isn't, who's part of this church, who's a member of this church. Um, Wallenstein has had various forms of membership over the years, but we realized, especially coming through the time of COVID, that we were lacking clarity, that some who were coming new were going through a process of, of membership, many were not, and didn't understand what that process was. And we just felt it was time for us to revisit our process. And we're actually not emphasizing or using the word membership. Uh, we're instead using and focusing on the word commitment. Uh, this is a description that was given of the family commitment back on January 8th. Family commitment is a biblical description of the Christian life intended to promote and safeguard a healthy community of faith at Wallenstein Bible Chapel as we commit to following Christ together. This is our heart. We want there to be clarity about what we believe. We want there to be clarity about who we are as a church. And especially, we want it to be clear that as a church, our one focus is Jesus. Our one desire is following Christ. But we know, in fact, the elders have discussed this point and we've heard it from a number of people. This question is the family commitment legalism. Is it legalistic for us to publish 12 statements that describe the Christian life, call our people to affirm this, to commit themselves to this as a way of officially saying, we are with you, we want to be part of this church family. Is that legalistic? So we want to answer that question today from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 29. So I'm going to begin by reading these verses, and then we want to unpack them together this morning. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. This is Jesus speaking. This is from the Sermon on the Mount, 
which by the way is a fundamental, foundational teaching of the Christian faith. And this is really close to the end now of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, we were just singing about that day, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly. Now this is our Lord Jesus speaking. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, the word therefore here, shows us that Jesus is continuing in the same line of thinking. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand... The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. May God help us to understand these crucial words of Jesus. Matthew 7, 21 to 29, here's the first thing I want us to see from this passage, and it begins right there in verse 24. Obedience is essential in the Christian faith. Obedience is essential in the Christian faith. It's right there, it's clear in verse 24. Everyone who hears, or sorry, verse 21, everyone who says to me, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who will enter the kingdom? Only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Do you see the obedience in that? What Jesus is saying here is, here's how you can tell if someone is a genuine believer. Here's how you can tell if someone has crossed over from death into life. And it's this. They do the will of God. What's the will of God? The will of God is what we find revealed in God's word. This is what it looks like to be a child of God. This is what it looks like to be saved, to be born again, or as we often say, to be a follower of Jesus. It is characterized by being someone whose heart bends toward God's will and being obedient to the will of God. You say, really? Like, is that... Well, this must be the only place in the Bible that kind of emphasizes obedience because surely the Bible just mostly emphasizes faith and having faith and actually it's not the only place in fact I'm only going to show you some places where Jesus emphasizes obedience in his teaching Matthew 28 another absolutely foundational teaching of the Christian faith we call it the great commission where Jesus says go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father of the son and the holy spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you You see, this is foundational to what it means to be a Christian, to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. First of all, it means that I am a disciple 
who has heard, notice, I've heard the commands of Jesus, and I am so committed to those commands, I, I want to do them myself, but I want to teach other people to do them. This, this is what it means to evangelize, in a sense. This is what it means to bring others to the faith. We teach them what he's taught us, much of which are commands. And we teach them to obey. This is foundational. Luke 11. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd calls out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Wouldn't it be fun if people just yelled stuff out when <laughs> pastor's up here preaching? No one's ever yelled this out to me. But someone yelled it out to Jesus. A woman yelled this to Jesus. She was amazed by him, by his teaching, and maybe she'd seen his miracles, and she just is, is overcome, and she blurts out this statement, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God. And he didn't stop there. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. John chapter 8, very truly I tell you, this is Jesus, whoever obeys my word will never see death. John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. John 14, later, 23 and 24, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And then one more from Luke chapter 6, similar statement to the one we've already read, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say. You see, it's crucial from the mind and heart of Jesus, who, by the way, is our Savior. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the foundation of the church. He's the cornerstone of everything we believe. He's our Savior. This is what he says to us about what it means to follow him. And he emphasizes over and over the importance of obedience. You say, well, that's just Jesus. I mean, the rest of the New Testament writers uh, don't emphasize obedience as much as Jesus did. And it's almost like, isn't there a shift from Jesus and what he taught about the Christian faith to Paul and the others? And, and that's wrong. Don't ever, don't ever let anyone convince you that there's some shift between the Gospels in, in the doctrine of the good news to, to Paul and Peter and the other epistles. Of course, they were disciples of Jesus. They were the ones who had been taught by Jesus, who were to go and make disciples of Jesus, who obeyed everything that Jesus had commanded them. It's the same message. And not surprisingly, every New Testament writer and book emphasizes obedience as essential to the Christian faith. I don't have time to unpack that or prove that to you, but you can do it really easily if you have Google. Or if you have the internet, you can type in BibleGateway.com. And then in that little window, you can type in the word command or commandment or obey or obedience, and you will find countless New Testament verses from virtually every book of the New Testament that emphasize the importance of obedience. So obedience is essential in the Christian faith. It's what's characteristic of those whose hearts have been converted from their old life to a new life converted to Jesus Christ. But here's the second thing we see in our passage, and that is that obedience ensures that I have not created my own version of Christianity. How do we see that in our passage? Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name 
perform many miracles, and then this astounding statement from Jesus seems so harsh, so surprising when he says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What is this? People who call Jesus Lord, people who evidently pray to Jesus, name his name, people who do some of the same things that Jesus did, casting out demons, prophesying, doing miracles. How is it that there could be people like that? And yet, from the very heart of Jesus, this answer, I don't know you, and you are an evildoer. What is this? It's, it's hard to, to grasp, but I, I think the thing that helps me is to think of what we have seen for most of our lives in Western Christianity, and I'm just going to say the word, televangelist. Not every televangelist would fall into this category, but we have all seen and heard those who name the name of Jesus and preach the Bible and even claim to do the same kinds of supernatural things that are listed here, and yet the reality is they are preaching a different Christianity. It is a different gospel, and that as they preach that, they are enriching themselves off the backs of those who listen to them. There should be no greater angst for us as believers than to know that that happens in the name of Christianity and no wonder Jesus says it is evil. It is sin. There will be people, as, as Jesus has prophesied, this is his word. He knows what's going to happen in the future. He's told us what's going to happen in the future. There's going to be people who stand before him who say that they were Christians. We preached for you. We named your name and he will say you're evil and they will be cast out of his presence for eternity what is this? I'll tell you what it is it is a Christianity that is someone's personal version of Christianity it is not the Christianity that is described by Jesus that was lived by Jesus that was taught by Jesus and his followers it's not the Christianity that is described in the word of God it's a Christianity of someone's own making and I want us to realize how dangerous how real this danger is for every one of us to twist the true teaching of God's word and either add to it or change it or make it somehow in our own image where it's kind of the Christian faith, it's, it's, it's kind of the gospel message, but it's, it's got my own spin on it. And when we do that, we demonstrate that we actually haven't yet met Jesus, that we actually haven't understood the true message of Christianity and the gospel and that we don't belong to God. Ladies and gentlemen, this is happening rampantly in our day. We are living in a time when our culture, we talked about this last week, is desperately trying to change the definition of things that we understand to be absolutely fundamental to what it means to be human, to what it means to be made by Creator God, to what it means to be made in His image. And you know this. Culture is desperately trying to change the definitions of marriage and 
sexuality and gender. And the reality is that numerous churches, even ones around us, near us, are trying to find a way to embrace the world's definition of those issues, the world's understanding of the world's abandonment of what we find in God's word, and somehow bring together that, that world, that cultural understanding of those things with some form of Christianity where we can just mix it all together and say, isn't it wonderful? It's happening all around us. It's happening to churches near us. Christians are debating this question, should we change the message that we've always preached, our understanding of God's word that we've always had, so that we can somehow embrace the world's view of these foundational issues. This is such a grave danger. Brothers and sisters, this is why we need the family commitment in our day. We have to rally around a true understanding of God's word and of the Christian faith. We have to be absolutely clear about what we believe about theology and morality. And as a church, especially as we minister in the church and outside of the church, we need to know that we all embrace and accept that biblical understanding of these eternal truths. And it's obedience that ensures that I've not created my own version of Christianity. I really believe this is one of the reasons why God instituted baptism. I mean, baptism is kind of a weird thing. It, the Bible teaches it's something that should happen fairly soon or, or immediately after someone comes to salvation. And you can just imagine the question that arises as, as some new believer comes to Jesus and then we immediately begin to talk to them about how exciting it is that now you get to be baptized. Well, what's baptism? Well, we're going to put you in water and we're going to dunk you and then we're going to pull you out again and we're all going to clap. You're going to do what? Like, I'm going to go in the water with all my clothes on? Yes, preferably. <laughs> and you're going, to, you're going to put me under the water and bring me... What is the purpose? Does this make... Does this, does this help me? Does this save me somehow? No. So why do I have to do this? And the reason that I believe God in his wisdom front-loaded baptism as the very first thing we do when we say that we've come to Christ because it answers the question, will I do it my way or his way? That's really the question that we're answering. Will I surrender to the will of God who said, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey? Baptism is the safeguard so that right at the front end of my Christian life, I understand that he is Lord and I am his child and following him means I do what he says. And I actually come to realize that he's been so good to me in the commands that he's given me. They're for my good. They're for my blessing and I love him. And so I do what he says and we get that issue sorted out right away when we say, now it's time to be baptized. Are you in? And so if your answer to that question, having seen the word of God and knowing what the Bible teaches about baptism, if your answer is, no, I'm not in. I have a version of Christianity where I don't need to do that. It's not necessary, it's not important. Then you're in danger of doing the very thing that Jesus is describing here, of coming up with a, a Christianity, a view of the faith that's entirely your own. It's no longer his 
You're in danger of missing out on the Savior. And you see, obedience is the thing that demonstrates that we really trust him. You say, isn't it about faith? It's not about obedience. It's not about deeds. Yeah, but, but obedience is the thing that demonstrates that I trust him. You can't say, I trust him to save me. I don't buy anything else, he says. Well, then you don't trust him. Obedience demonstrates that we trust in Jesus. That leads to the third point that we find here, which comes from the verse that we just read, where Jesus, in pronouncing judgment upon these people who were really false believers, false profession, when he says this, and it's in the negative, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. But when I turn that negative statement around and recognize that what Jesus is saying here, it opens me up to understand what obedience is And it's just what I've just been describing. When I have a relationship with Jesus in which I trust him, in which I hear his voice, in which I I, I trust that he has my best interest in heart, his heart is to bless me and to save me. When I understand that, when I have this relationship with him, obedience is the thing that flows. Obedience flows from a relationship with of love. Now, those of you who know me know that uh, I, I have some strange idiosyncrasies. Sometimes I've called myself a redneck pastor. I once sold a rifle scope to this guy that I didn't know. And when he found out that I was a pastor, he's like, I go to the wrong church. <laughs> so it's not all bad. But if you get to know me, you know that I love to be in the outdoors. I love to be in the woods, as I say. I, I, I love to hunt. I even love to cut firewood. Now, the older I get, as I stand there bent over with a chainsaw, I ask myself, why do I do this? Why, do I love this? But if you were to get to know me and know some of those idiosyncrasies about me, eventually you'd find out about... Grandpa Goodkey passed away in 1995 when I was 20. And for most of the years of my life, if you would have said, so who's your best friend? I would have said, Grandpa. When we lived in northern Ontario, Grandpa lived in Bancroft, but I would come to his house in the summer, two weeks, three weeks, sometimes a month, just me and Grandpa. Grandpa was born in 1925, lived through the 30s, grew up on a farm where, farmed with horses, much like they had been done for hundreds of years, told me about how he had to work as a, like a man when he was 12 and even younger, kind of resented it, told me about how he got his first deer when he was 12 years old, told me about the time he was crouched down under this fallen tree and this big buck jumped over him. And he got it, and I, I think someday I'll have to go to Grandpa and say, did you embellish that one? <laughs> Taught me about hard work. Grandpa loved to cut firewood. Loved to go to the woods. And what I realize now is that his life has been implanted. His fingerprint is on my life. And it happened because I loved him. And that's the Christian life. 
The Christian life is knowing Jesus, having a relationship with Jesus. Jesus said that in John 17. This is eternal life, he said, to know God and Jesus Christ who he sent. That's what it is. We just sang this song, On That Day I Will See You. On that day, I will know you, and we need to celebrate the fact that there's a day coming when we will see Jesus face to face. We will know him as we are known. That's all true and biblical, but you need to understand that you can have that now, that now we can see Jesus, and now we can know Jesus, and as we live in relationship with him, his fingerprint becomes stamped upon us, his, his values, the things that he loves, the things that he his mission gets stamped upon our lives so that we begin to be transformed. Now understand that this doesn't happen before we come to know Jesus. We come to Jesus because we're desperate for a Savior. And as we come to him and as we come to know him, he changes our lives. And ways in which we weren't obeying him early in our Christian walk, later we change and we're transformed because we've come to know him and know his heart and will on a certain matter. Obedience flows from a relationship with God. This is the final statement that we put into the family commitment. I will seek to abide in Christ, setting my mind and heart on his beauty, walking in the spirit as the source of spiritual life and power for keeping these commitments. We understand that following Jesus in obedience requires walking with Jesus in relationship. It's not something we do apart from him. So obedience is essential in the Christian faith. Obedience ensures that I've not created my own version of Christianity. Obedience flows from a relationship of love. And then this one, obedience and legalism are completely unrelated. We actually see that in the final verses. Jesus finishes up with this memorable story of the guy who builds on the rock and the guy who builds on the sand characterized by whether we obey him and do what he says and then in verse 28 when Jesus had finished saying these things the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law that's a weird statement because if you know anything about the time of Jesus the people who had authority especially from a spiritual or theological perspective were the teachers of the law the Pharisees they were the ones who had authority. They were the ones that people had to listen to and do what they say. But when people heard Jesus and met Jesus and saw Jesus, they said, this is different. This is not what we've been hearing. And of course, the teachers of the law were teaching what we might call legalism. And so we need to understand this. Obedience and legalism are completely unrelated. If the family commitment is calling us to obey God's word and follow Christ in obedience, then it is not legalism. Let's take a moment and think about the difference between these two things. Obedience demonstrates salvation. Legalism denies salvation. What do I mean by that? Legalism in its purest form says that I need Jesus, yeah, but I also need me. I need my religious efforts. The picture of the Bible is a picture of salvation in which we are the drowning person. 
and Jesus dives in and we've already gone under and we, we've already gone unconscious and our lungs have filled with water and Jesus dives in and rescues us from certain death and drags us up on the shore and gives us CPR but ultimately only saves us and rescues us by transferring his life to ours by giving up his own life in death. That's the Christian message of salvation. Legalism places Jesus in a boat. And he comes out alongside us as we're struggling to swim. And Jesus begins to encourage us and says, you can do it. I'll be right here. But you can do it. Keep trying. Try, try harder. Swim this way. And that's legalism. And in that sense, legalism denies salvation denies the fact that our only hope is Jesus and Jesus alone and tries to add something that we do as the thing that saves us. Obedience is security in God's will. To do God's will is to be in the safest place. To obey God and his word is to be free. But legalism enslaves us in human rules. And number three, obedience flows from love for God. Legalism flows from pride in myself. That's what you see in the, in, the, in the stories of the Pharisees. And by the way, the Gospels are filled with conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees so that we would understand this point. The one story Jesus told was about a Pharisee who went to the temple and prayed publicly, God, I'm so glad I'm not like others. So proud, so full of pride in self, not a humility, recognizing my desperation, my desperate need for salvation from God, but a pride that essentially says, I don't really need God. So how does the family commitment relate to all these things? This is part of the preamble that you may have read. Wallenstein Bible Chapel uses a family commitment to call followers of Christ into the deep community of church life described in the Bible. The WBC family commitment is made up of 12 statements that we ask people to affirm in order to make their connection to WBC official. These statements are not rules that are mandated for salvation. Rather, they describe the kind of life that is a result of salvation and of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit within us. We do not affirm these statements for spiritual pride, but out of love for Jesus Christ, who is worthy of any sacrifice we will ever make. The WBC family commitment provides a biblical vision of what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be the church. So how is this all going to work? We're grateful for so many of you who took the time to read the family commitment, and many of you have signed it. A very strong majority of the adults who attend here have signed the family commitment, and we're grateful for that. We know for some of you it's still a struggle and we would love the opportunity to walk through this with you. Three things that I want to emphasize before we continue. Number one, everyone is welcome at WBC. We've heard from a few people that once we introduced the family commitment, the uh, assumption was they were no longer welcome to be here if they weren't going to sign it, and that's not true at all. Everyone is welcome at WBC, including seekers and believers who've not affirmed the family commitment. Folks, we weekly have people here who've yet to trust in Jesus, and it's awesome. It's wonderful. And we expect that. We expect to have believers who've yet to affirm the family commitment, who are wrestling with it on, on various levels. 
and that's good and that's okay. Secondly, there are opportunities for everyone to get involved at WBC, including seekers and believers who've not affirmed the family commitment. Lots of ways for people to be involved in serving and in participating. And then this one is really important. The elders are committed to walking with those who are already involved in a core ministry but are struggling with the family commitment. So I'm about to show you a list of what I've called here core ministries that uh, are going to be introduced as ministries that will require uh, affirmation of the family commitment. In order for us, as we invite people into ministry, to be able to have the confidence that we are together in this, that we are in agreement, these are the ministries where the family affirmation of the family commitment will be required. But notice this bullet point. Some of you have not affirmed the family commitment, but you've already been involved in ministry. And our commitment to you as elders is to say this, you're not fired today, that we want to walk with you and talk with you uh, and work through the implications of the family commitment with you. Some of you have had concerns, and we've uh, many times asked that if you have any concerns about this, that you would come to the elders and discuss. If you haven't done that, we hope that you will very soon. So here are the core ministries that we are saying because of the importance of them, these are ministries where people will have had to affirm the, the family commitment. This is true now, moving forward, uh, any who are new to the church, coming in for the first time, interested in being part of our church, uh, this is what we will be teaching. So serving as a primary leader or staff member, which would include elders, staff members obviously, deacons, and those on the Thrive team. Serving as a ministry team or small group leader, we would like and are asking now that people would have affirmed the family commitment. Serving as a Bible teacher, not surprisingly, we, we want to know that we're in agreement theologically as described in our we believe statement and in our family commitment. Serving as a spiritual leader, this could be in any, any kind of ministry, it could include Kid zone, coming, along children, coming alongside children, being the person who's encouraging them to follow Jesus. Well, we want to be sure that you've chosen to follow Jesus. Serving as a, uh, in men's ministry, women's ministry, as a spiritual leader to others, junior youth, quench. If you're coming alongside and discipling others to follow Jesus, then we want to know that you've committed yourself to the same. Serving as a spiritual caregiver, um, Stephen minister, or being asked by Wayne or others to provide spiritual care for those who are struggling. And then finally, serving publicly in our worship gatherings. One other is serving as an official representative of WBC. You're the person who's that welcomer out in the foyer with the name tag, helping people understand what our church is about and encouraging them to participate. Let me remind you again, if you're already involved in one of these ministries, you haven't affirmed the family commitment and you're struggling with this, we want to walk with you through this process. So please reach out to one of the elders. I want to finish with this, these two verses from our passage in Matthew 17. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Brothers and sisters, we are living in a time of storm, of changing winds, of, of danger. And as a church, we want to make sure that our foundation is on the rock of God's word and on the person of Jesus. Same is true for us as individuals. We want us to each build our lives on this rock of God's word demonstrated by our obedience to it. The emphasis I want us to see here is in the rock. Jesus said, I never knew you to those who weren't genuine followers of Jesus. And then he describes a life that is built on the rock. And we know from God's word that this imagery points directly to Christ and to God. This is where we want to build our lives. This is where we want to build our church. And the reality is for all of us, we struggle to live the Christian life. In fact, we can't live the Christian life apart from the strength and power of God working in us and through us. He is the one we need. This is why we preach the gospel. It's only through Christ that we can live for Christ. So we want to run to the rock. Run back to Jesus again and again. He is our source. I'm going to ask uh, Matt to come. He's going to close uh, in prayer for us. And I'm going to ask all of our elders to come, if you would, gentlemen. Matt is going to uh, close in prayer, and then we're going to sing. We're going to sing, Lord, I Need You. And I couldn't think of a more fitting song to demonstrate what we're speaking of today. And if the Lord has spoken to your heart as he's spoken to my heart this week, maybe you've recognized that you've had your own version of Christianity. It's time to turn from that version and turn to Jesus, turn to the truth Maybe you've realized today that you've actually never trusted in Christ for salvation. You need to be saved. You need Jesus to rescue you. Please come. Maybe you have recognized today that it's time to be baptized. It's time to follow Jesus in obedience in that. Whatever it is, even as we sing this song, you are invited to come. If you want to speak to one of the elders, you may. If you want to just get down and pray, humble yourself before the Lord, you may do that. So Matt's going to pray. We're going to sing, and then we want to invite each of us to do business with God. Let's pray. Lord, we want to live our lives for you. We love you. And Lord, we know we cannot do this apart from you. God, we are excited about the freedom that you give us. It was for freedom that you set us free. And in that, Lord, we just want to serve you with our lives. We want to give everything to you and as the world swirls around us and things change in our culture and things change in our lives lord we want to be grounded and rooted in you the rock god help us to give every aspect of our life over to you help us to be all for christ god as we follow you help us to do it with boldness and joy as a church family help us to seek you help us to find you, Lord, in each of our days to see you clearly and to do the things that you are doing. 
God, we pray for our church family, Lord, that we would be like an outpost, like a light unto the world because you are here with us, moving through us. God, we pray for our church family that we would grow closer to you day by day and in our deep love for you, Lord, that your way, your life would rub off onto us and we'd become more like you that we'd look more like you, we would sound more like you, we would act more like you. Lord, as we we fellowship this afternoon, as we eat together around tables and around our church, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would use that time we have together to challenge one another, to spur one another on, to pray for one another, to get into each other's lives, to encourage one another like a family does. Help us to be a beautiful, wonderful reflection of your family and of you. So we ask that you'd bless us as we go today. We ask that you'd be with us as we go today, that you'd go with us out of this place and into our weeks. Help us to serve you, to love you, and love our neighbor well. In Jesus' precious name, amen.